Welcome to the Boost Podcast with Kelly Leonard, the podcast providing you with immediate access to tools, tips, and tactics to boost your business and career success. Build your brand, optimize relationships, obtain more leads, secure thought leadership space, and tap into new markets. It's the Boost Podcast. And now, here's Kelly Leonard. Hello and welcome back to the Boost Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Leonard. Today's episode features Wangari Kamau. Wangari is a speaker, facilitator, and the founder of Soma Global Consulting. She constantly innovates to align people development programs with evolving business needs that fit with the future of work. She's received organizational awards for design of mentoring and onboarding programs, which were key in upskilling hundreds of people over six global regions. The part of Boost that she'll cover during our conversation is secure thought leadership space and tap into new markets by saying yes to always learning, unlearning, and then relearning, and recognizing that nothing is constant, especially knowledge. So let's tune in. Hey, Wangari, welcome to the Boost Podcast and happy Black History Month. Thank you, Kelly. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Yes, I am so excited to dig into this conversation with you to share with our Boost Podcast community more about what Soma Global Consulting does. So why don't we just start from there, start from the top with you perhaps sharing with our community what type of work your organization does? Well, Soma Global Consulting is a consulting firm as the name implies, and we work in the global space with companies dealing with issues around organizational development and talent development. And this includes a myriad of things to do with people development. That's our passion because people are the most important thing in an organization. So we deal with people. And that's such a great point because I think Um, So often, and I think, well, COVID has really shown us the importance of people and that all people are important to the successful either rise or fall of an organization. And so I would love to just sort of learn more about, are there certain things in light of COVID? Are there things that you've seen where organizations have done either really well or maybe they've been challenged in really supporting people around talent development because we've been forced because of COVID to even rethink the way that we approach how we support one another. So I would love to learn more about your thoughts on that side. Well, yes, COVID has definitely thrown a curveball for many organizations. Most were run on a culture of presenteeism, which meant if you were not seen in the office, it meant you were not working. But COVID has proved us very wrong. And many organizations had to rush to be able to adapt to remote working. And that meant they didn't have policies in place. So what unfortunately some organizations did, the ones who were unprepared because they were always suspicious of remote work was go into a culture, translate that culture of presenteeism to having their employees on camera all the time. Then we quickly realized this was affecting morale. 
because your parents working from home, parents homeschooling, and this was taking actually a toll on people's well-being. So that have, those have been some of the challenges that I have seen organizations grappling with, just learning how to balance this personal and professional space for their employees and what that means in the place of remote work. What some companies have done well, the ones that were out of the gate, better prepared, already had flexible work policies. They had employees working from home two or three times a week. They were able to rapidly adapt. And when the, what they did well was they just said to their employees, just carry on working from home. And I've heard that some organizations have actually said, we're not going back to that old model ever. And just seeing that the organizations that had already started this journey were able to quickly then adapt and fully get their employees up and running. The other challenge is for startups who don't have a lot of money, so they hired people, then they didn't have resources to give them so that these people buy computers to work from home or equipment to work from home. So that's also another gap that we are seeing. And more important, we are also seeing the challenge of mental health for mm. employees. And when organizations did not cover that in medical plans, many have had to rush and make sure that they're giving employees resources for mental health. Wow. And that's, a, you covered a lot that I, it's funny. I hadn't heard or even thought about this whole notion of employers, this, this mistrust and requiring for people to be on camera. Although I will say, so my husband and I, we were, had a, a FaceTime or a Zoom call with a friend of ours recently. And he was talking about, oh, I don't believe in remote work. I've never really believed in remote work. And as if it's like this thing, like, you know, you can believe in and not believe. And and so it was just, I was like, wow, you know, and it really made me feel an added amount of just feeling of, of being fortunate and being blessed to be in an organization that I am like with Cook Ross, where we immediately, you know, there was this pivot and you have to have some level of trust that your folks are going to be able to do their work successfully. And that, you know, hopefully they're mature enough and there's integrity there where they're going to deliver on what they say they're going to deliver. But I do also remember back in because I came up through public accounting where FaceTime was everything. Even if you didn't have stuff to do, you need to stay there until the sun went down. Because if you weren't there, the assumption was you're not working. And it's like, what, are you kidding me? And so, yeah, I I definitely appreciate so much of what you just shared and the mental health impact. Um, because I think the presumption, and I know for, for us at Cook Ross, we've gotten really good about also even inviting people to feel comfortable with turning their cameras off because, you know, number one, some people, maybe it's privacy. I don't want you to see what my house looks like, or maybe it's, I'm sharing a space with a spouse or my child is doing their online schooling in the background. And so I don't necessarily want all of those things to be exposed to my co-workers and my colleagues. So thank you so much for that. Now, I will say question for you around this whole space of talent development. Have you seen new or unique ways in which employers are addressing sort of the ongoing need to support their teams with 
professional development or training and, and, and things like that in this remote space? Thanks, Kelly. I think the main thing that I am seeing that's a challenge for organizations is how to onboard new employees in this age of remote work. It's not like before when you go into the office, your name was on the door, your computer was ready, you were walked around by somebody, you were assigned a peer buddy. You had that, what I call the human touch. It's very hard to have that virtually, even if the company does have something robust in place. So that's one of the main challenges in the talent development umbrella that I'm seeing. And the other thing is sometimes the kind of learnings that are put out, uh, we've gone from what was face-to-face learning and moved that directly into the virtual space and not really adapted it to the virtual space. Mm. What do I mean by that? You have, for example, if it's a leadership program, then you want people to have an interactive exercise. You sort of take whatever you were using as your interactive exercise in the face-to-face space and try and run it on a virtual space, which of course doesn't come out the same. So it's very important for trainers to make sure they adapt, especially the interactive portions of their training to a virtual space. Whether you're going to do pre-work that you send ahead to people and have them work on something so that they can come back into breakout or discussion groups. Just find a workaround to make sure that you're delivering the best product possible for your clients. Awesome. Now, I know recently, or maybe not so recently, uh, one of the things that you were the fortunate beneficiary of is that you had a blog that was trending on LinkedIn, um, hashtag diversity, And you had a lot of engagements or engagement on that blog. Can you tell us more about sort of what the content was? Yes, I am very passionate about diversity, equity and inclusion. And many, I don't know many organizations that do not say diversity, equity and inclusion is important to us. However, when I do what I call the litmus test, and I have to quote Dr. Pamela Newkirk, whose work I love and admire, she writes a lot around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's an industry where organizations spend $8 billion a year, yet it is still not working. And many of the reasons that it's still not working is because, first of all, organizations need to define exactly what is diversity in this organization. As somebody who works in the global space, the country I come from, diversity is along ethnic lines. If you're working in a country like India, it's a long caste system. If you're working in the United States, it's based on skin color. So you need to really be clear what is diversity, equity, and inclusion in your organization. What, and then once you define that and everybody understands it, then you look at the values in your organization. We respect people here. Everybody has the same opportunities. Does your organizational culture truly match your values? Many people would say, of course, we treat people with respect. But ask the people in the out group, do you feel value? And if their answer is no, you as a person in the in group do not have the right to say we treat people with respect. You need to address it. It's about being authentic when it comes 
to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's about really, truly having people who are behavioral psychologists if needed, just come in and observe behavior in your organization and being committed to the feedback they give you so that you can be sure that everybody who comes to this to work here can bring their whole self to work and everybody who comes here will find dignity and purpose in the work that they do. They will feel valued. That's what everybody wants, to feel valued and to feel they contribute for the organization. And that they really, you, that you are what I call integrated. Because when it comes to diversity, equity, and, and inclusion, there are also three tiers. Assimilation. You come here and you do things as we do them. Don't tell us about your opinion. You come and get absorbed into this organization. We don't want to hear your different opinion. Or we have what we call differentiation. You're from a certain place, like the famous story of somebody from Argentina who speaks Spanish and is assigned to work on programs in Mexico because they speak Spanish. Then you're thinking they speak Spanish. Of course, everybody understand everything about the people in Mexico because it's the same language. So that's what we call differentiation. Then we have integration. That is where we say, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of it that way. I like that. Can you explain it a bit more? And truly listening to what that person is saying. And differentiation is where the hard work is. Yeah, absolutely. And creating that culture of belonging where, to your point, everyone can feel valued, feel appreciated, have dignity and purpose um, in the work and in their contributions. One of the things that you mentioned um, earlier on when we first started talking and talking, you know, we were talking about COVID and the impact. And one of the things that you mentioned was sort of the mental health impact. Um, And, you know, so there's COVID, but then there's also the continued challenges that we face as a nation and quite frankly, as the world around racism and the trauma um, that in particular, the black community Um, feels as a result of that. And so I do certainly appreciate the fact that um, many organizations in the marketplace, um, business enterprises, large organizations have stood up and said and, and proclaimed that Black Lives Matter, which is a wonderful and important step in the right direction. But I would love to get or and I would love to get your um, sort of your thoughts on where do we go from here and what more really, what are the visible signs? Because there was something else that you said, litmus tests, but also just this whole notion of, okay, how do we make sure that we're also holding organizations accountable? Because it's one thing to speak a thing, a totally different thing to do a thing. And so how do we encourage and get more organizations to be more than just speakers, but doers of Um, sort of addressing the trauma that their Black workforce may be feeling in light of this double dose of COVID and the disparities, the, um, you know, inequity around access and the toll that COVID was already taking on people of color and specifically the Black community. Um, And then coupled by what we saw unfold and what we continue to see unfolding Um, in our communities um, across the country? Wow, that sounds like a CNN political question. (laughs) I'll answer it from the people development perspective. It doesn't matter where we are from. 
we are all the human race. And when you're part of the dominant culture, that is so important to, first of all, to acknowledge your privilege. And once you acknowledge your privilege, to realize that there are other people who just by default of how they were born, they started life like it was 400 steps behind you. And the thing is, if there's cognitive dissonance, you can have all the laws you want. You can have all the rules you want in an organization. But if people don't really think of this from a humanistic point of view that everybody deserves to be treated equally. I I don't know how many rules and how many laws can be put in place because what happens is people will always find that workaround. They'll always find a workaround. And to say in an organization, we want all our employees to find dignity and purpose here. And if there's somebody in that organization who is saying, look, I don't feel that I find dignity and purpose here. And to be honest, all these microcuts and microaggressions, which now in the workplace are very subtle, they have a direct impact of, on people's mental health. They have a direct impact. They lead to things like inflammation. And I know I'm not giving, I don't have the magic bullet to say this is what should be done. But I feel that people, if you come from a place of how can I be an ally and really mean it, don't deflect and say things like, well, you know, I came from a very poor background and I made it. Yes, we do have those antidotal people. But even if you came from a very poor background and you made it and you're from the dominant culture, you probably still had a head start because of the way you look. And yes, you're not responsible for what happened 400 years ago, but you are a beneficiary. And if you're a beneficiary, what you can do is be an ally to others and help people have a fair starting point, just like you did. And I'm not calling this country out, but there are many things that there were many points where start and stop. When we look at the people who went and fought in the world wars, what happened with the GI Bill, that's what built what is considered today middle class because people were able to go to college. They were able to use that money to buy homes. And it wasn't until maybe the mid or late 60s that African-American people were able to get mortgages. So that is an example of some of the systemic stuff that still has to be worked out. And if you, again, are in the dominant culture, you need to be so aware and know if you're in a space where you can do something, just speak up and make this change. That organizational culture, make sure you're behaving to match those values. I so appreciate everything that you said. It's and you know, it's interesting because I've gotten to the point, and I can't remember where I read this, but to the point that you made about um privilege and how some people were like, Well, I, you know, lifted myself up by the bootstraps and I wasn't wealthy and I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my hand, to the point where I've stopped saying privilege to say advantage. Because even if you don't perceive yourself as being a person of privilege, you were at an advantage. And I was, I think I was listening to it. I can't remember if it was a podcast or some program that I was watching where there was, um, you know, a homeless, a, a gentleman who like 
brought himself out of homelessness and he, um, a, a white gentleman, and he said something about the fact that, you know, I don't perceive myself as being a per- person of privilege, but I do know this. I am a person of advantage because I know that when my fellow black homeless person was on the street and panhandling or just loitering or what have you, I was not approached or, you know, interrogated by law enforcement. I just went on about my business doing what I do. And so, yes, I may, I may not be quote unquote privileged, but I certainly have advantage. And so, um, so yet, because even our words are so important, right? Because they can be used. (laughs) We can use our words to prove or disprove any darn thing it seems. And so, so yeah, so I definitely uh, appreciate everything that you just shared. Um, Wangari, this has been such a rich conversation and I know we could probably go on and on and on and still not solve the world's woes. And, you know, but my hope and my prayer is that, um, you know, we will overcome um, and I remain hopeful that as we begin having and continue having these conversations and people really thought lean into the discomfort getting comfortable with being uncomfortable um, because it is a learning process right so I would love for you to just share some closing remarks as well as just sharing as people who perhaps are in this listening community and perhaps want to know more about how to connect with you or engage your your services if you could share with the folks the best way to connect with you. Thank you very much, Kelly. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation too. And closing remarks, in the new world of remote work, there is a lot to be done. And we are in what I call or is called the fourth industrial revolution or the machine learning. And despite the advantages that machines bring and automation, studies still show that human beings are the most valued part of all this because machines have not yet reached a part where they can be creative. And that skill comes from humans. So let's continue to value the people in our organizations and let's continue to ensure that everybody finds dignity and purpose in their place of work. And you can find me, I am on LinkedIn. I'm very active. So please message me on LinkedIn and I'll be more than happy to connect with you. My name is exactly as it's spelled, W-A-N-G-A-R-I and then K-A-M-A-U. If you just type that in LinkedIn, my picture will pop up. Thank you very much, Kelly. Awesome. Wangari, it has been a pleasure. And folks, um, her contact information will also be in the show notes. Feel free to reach out and be sure to mention you heard her on the Boost podcast. And so thank you for tuning in. Well, that concludes this episode of the Boost Podcast. Thank you again for listening in. If you don't mind, if you could like, subscribe, or share the podcast with a friend, I would greatly appreciate it. For more information on anything Boost related, you can visit our website at www.kellytleonard.com. 